fell asleep and ate the flowers For a couple of hours On a beautiful day Welcome back to another episode of Not All at Once. I'm Jordan Guess. Hello, I'm Kendall Y. Hey, Kendall. Did you get sick over Thanksgiving break? Or the, uh, no, the holiday? No, that that would be you. That will be you. Dude, I feel like the flu is going around, though. I'm hearing well, some. I have heard that um, a lot of young folks, kids have been sick these past few weeks. I guess that just means you're a kid. Yeah, you're, I am a kid at heart. You're a giant kid, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad that we were recording today on Thursday and that we didn't try to record earlier in the week because I would have had to cancel on you. Um, but yeah, we were recording December 1st. Happy December. Happy December. Uh, oh, sorry. That was my bad. <laughs> I was like, is there someone there? <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, it's just a little past 9.30 uh, a.m. on the Eastern time zone. So, man, well, talk me through. Let's just give quick updates on Thanksgiving. How was your Thanksgiving holiday? Oh, Thanksgiving was good. It was good. Yeah. Wasn't okay. like um, overly stressful. I didn't get to see all my nieces and nephews, but got to saw, got to see some. Okay. Very uh, cool. Got some good sweets. Not really a sweets guy, but I guess you know it's the time of the year for sweets, so I will indulge. Yeah, for sure. Last night we actually went to this place called Crumble Cookie. Have you ever been to this place? You know what I'm no, talking about? No, it sounds interesting. Dude, it's it's a trap. I would stay away, but it is it's very good. It's like these gourmet cookies. Raven had like a gift card or something. So we got them for free, but um, they were very yummy, but they were also, I was like, never again. I can't eat those again. So, but man. Okay. So I didn't know. So a lot happened yesterday, Wednesday, the last day of the, of November between J pal, J pal spoke for a, quite a while yesterday. I mean, I was in and out like listening to it. Um, also the guy who was interviewing sounded a lot like me, sounded very sick. It's <laughs> kind of just funny. Like every time he ended um he ended a question, he sounded like he was about to cry. <laughs> it's really it was really interesting. Um so, anyways, <laughs> that happened. J Pal. Uh, we can kind of get into that if we want to, because it just to me, it seems like Everything in our whole global economy now rests on the words of one man, um, which maybe that's how it's always been. I don't know. And then the other thing that was just mind boggling yesterday was the interview um, with uh, Sam Brink, Sam Bankman Freed. I almost called him Sam Bankman Fraud. <laughs> um, that was just like on the Bloomberg I mean, it was all over the place. They were streaming it on uh, CNBC. I watched the whole thing. Uh, it was kind of crazy. And then I see on Twitter, it was all over Twitter last night, that he was going to be on Good Morning America with George Stephano Steph Stephanopoulos this morning. I didn't catch that, but um, we'll have to get into that because, man, I I want to hear some, some Kindle thoughts on... Mm. The meet the media tour that this man is the being media allowed. tour. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <clears throat> and then we can get into the markets. Like there's some some market reactions from yesterday's uh J Powell speech that were pretty bullish. I mean, I was seeing headlines that we have exited the uh bear market. So <laughs> well, but the underlying uh you know realities of the economy didn't change with Jer Jerome Powell's words yesterday. So and there's so where also, you want to start? There's also, um, I don't know how much there is to talk about this, but there's the protests going on in uh, yeah. China. Yep. Uh, I want to yeah, talk listen. about, I want to talk about SBF. Let's do it. Oh, I, I got to say my, that's what the media wants us to talk about. Yeah. That's the current, <laughs> that's the current thing. Yeah. You, you framed this before we got on the call. There is so much noise right now. That like 
Yeah, I think that I my timeline and like my newsfeed is just totally consumed with SBF garbage. So mm-hmm. I I don't even know what happened at the Fed meeting yesterday. Um so yeah, you you know, typically I like to think I'm like the signal and the noise, but I am all noise today. <laughs> <laughs> but um well, well, let's start with SPF then. We can we can uh we can start there. Yeah, I do I mean I do think that there is a there is a worthy narrative here i mean generally the thing the thing that um like i can't figure out i've I've almost tweeted this several times i feel like this sbf debacle is like a seminal moment for like a seminal cultural moment in like the loss of trust in institutions i know that there's been a a massive decay in the in the trust institutions you know i'm com- i'm commenting on sentiment so like i don't know you know i can't there's no nothing direct i can point to but this is just sort of my gut feeling mm-hmm. there's a there's a definitely a loss of of trust in institutions you know over the past like 5 years let's call it especially 2 or 3 years um but i think that something about this sbf moment does feel like the first domino to fall like the shot heard around the world that people are like okay like i've sensed this for a long time now but like now there is something in the headlines which is like everybody's on board with right it's like everybody knows that everybody knows now that there is no trust in institutions yeah um especially just like the manner in which the interview was conducted. It was almost, I will say there were certain points where the guy, I forget the guy's name who interviewed him. Um, but there are certain points where he was definitely hard on him, called him out, said, are you sure you're not lying kind of thing. But there were a lot of other moments where it was almost like this light, playful interaction where it was like, yeah, we lost customer funds, but you know, I'm sorry. And it was like, there was laughing. There was, it was just kind of to your point of the trust just being completely under undermined and just kind of this whole display being pretty disgusting. Um, That was the most surprising thing for me was they're just out in the open. It seems like that's what's so um, bizarre to me is that it feels so blatant. There's like a line that's been drawn and it feels so blatantly obvious that like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the I forget who else, like the New Yorker, like these publications are just like very blatantly across, like over the line. And like, like I'm looking at this and I'm like, it's like so obvious to me that I'm questioning if it's intentional. Right. Like, um, so I actually did watch the the 10 minutes of the Good Morning America this morning, right before this call. Mm-hmm. Okay. And here's a little here's a little fun thing to do. I recommend if you follow these news events like we do, if you see these videos of SBF being interviewed, turn the sound off and just watch his presentation. Just visually watch him present because that's the message that he's actually conveying. He he the words that he says, he's very good at like um dodging questions and like um, making it sort of sound like no big deal or like, you know, don't look over there, look over here. He's very good at sort of misdirection with his words. But if you watch him visually, he is a total wreck. I mean, he he will tell you exactly what he's thinking if you just visually. And so what I saw was he was basically saying like, he was basically saying like um, what you just said, which is like, Hey, you know, we lost 10 billion in funds, but you know, it happens. That's basically like his, his, his stance. And then when, when pressured with the, with the questions of criminality, like, do you think you're going to go to jail? His strategy, I can tell is misdirection to other people in the organizations. So what he's trying to do is be like, you know, I was this entrepreneur. I was trying to run the business and grow our revenue. I was focused on revenue. 
I wasn't focused on these trivial details like where, you know, wire fraud. I wasn't, you know, these aren't, these aren't my responsibilities, you know, but, but then again, but he keeps saying, he keeps using the words, you know, ultimately it's my job. And it's like, you know, you say that just to to like, just to like hedge yourself. Like you're just like that, but that's a total bullshit. Again, like if you just watch his, his, his body language, what he's really saying, he's really trying to misdirect to, to other people in the organization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he was doing that constantly in the wall street journal uh, one where he would, he was essentially just talking out of both sides of his mouth. Um, So yeah, I'm with you. I don't really care what he has to say. Um, I think the bigger story is the fact that he's still just chilling out in, in the Bahamas doing interviews in person. And like the one that I watched last night was over Zoom. And then I think the one on GMA this morning was in person, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It, it To me, it's like if I stole even a million dollars from someone, you know, I get arrested, right? Isn't that the law? <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, so it just seems like there's just this blatant um, double standard right now being applied to him. And I did. I the other thing I was just made aware of, I guess, by one of his tweets or something he said where he had actually given he had taken the Elon Musk uh, kind of approach and given more or less equally to both political parties, but he just wasn't public about his Republican giving because he said something to the effect of, you know, the media would freak out over that. I don't know if that's true, but that would at least if that is true, that would at least um, I think would quell a lot of the a lot of the like Democratic Party, um, you know, interminglings and and all that kind of stuff. I just think there's still so much information we don't know. Mm-hmm. So, so much of this is still so just it's speculation. Yeah. The I most mean, difficult part to to see is just why is he not behind bars while all that stuff gets figured out? Because we do know some things for sure that like I mean, withdrawals he, are not happening. He probably did give to both parties, right? I mean, I mean, that's probably true. Like, my speculation in this current moment is we we don't even we've only seen the tip of the iceberg into what's actually going on here. I mean, I think that there's I think Tether Tether is on the absolute chopping block right now. Tether, I think for a long time the crypto industry has defended Tether, but I think the crypto industry is waking up to the fact that Tether is actually a massive money laundering scheme (laughs) i think people i think people realize that now and um i think sbf had deep involvement with tether um so there's some of that going on i think that i think that here's another thing that i think is going on i think that almost every single centralized exchange is not fully solvent (laughs) Every single one, including Coinbase. That's honestly what I think. That's my honest opinion. And I'll tell you why. I'm not, I don't think that, you know, Binance probably doing funky things with customer money, probably. Kraken and Coinbase, definitely not. They're definitely not like doing, you know, committing wire fraud like SBF was. But here's the thing. There are technical matters. I guarantee you that these exchanges have been hacked multiple times, like more than Mm -hmm. multiple times, many times. I guarantee you that they have lost millions in bugs. So there's like a software bug and like, (laughs) like, oops, we actually lit $10 million on fire. These are like, so like, I I never really put much like, um, stock in this, but, um, all of these centralized exchanges are effectively like new age software banks. And, um, and I can guarantee and like, because there's like this entrepreneurial Silicon Valley move fast and break things spirit. I guarantee you that they have lost probably hundreds of millions of dollars have just been totally lost by centralized exchanges. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so that's another thing that I think is going on. Um, <clears throat> This is all pure speculation. I think that um, 
I think that what SBF is really good at is like, um, or I don't even know if he's good at this, but it's just like a sign of the times. I literally think that's actually what it is. It's a sign of the times, but it's like this marketing dynamic where it's like he can get up there and act like he's just like sweet, innocent, cherub, you know, vegan, uh, you know, effective altruist. Like it's an all an act. It is literally all an act. And um, so, and I think that's kind of what's going on right now with this media campaign. He's just said this multiple times. And now I know for a fact that this is bullshit. Um, you know, like my lawyers are telling me not to, to not to do this. <laughs> why, why is everybody who interviews him talk says that, right? It's because I don't know if his lawyers are, he probably actually does have a difficult time finding a lawyer, but in his mind, this is a part of his strategy, right? He is mm-hmm. like making the, he's going on the, on the campaign, right? Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a shit show. Yeah, I mean, well, the other thing that he tried to um, tried to claim last night was that he didn't have really any hand in what was happening over at Alameda Research, which to me just seems like complete bullshit. I like um, how, yeah, because in that in the interview that I watched with Good Morning on Good Morning America earlier, it was like basically normalized that. Um, it was like accepted in the in the discussion that like this isn't like a like a bank per se. It's more like users are depositing money into a hedge fund. Like that's not what people think an exchange is. People don't people right. are like, I'm gonna, you know, give my money to a hedge fund. That's not what's going on. But like that is part of the narrative that they're they're trying to develop that like this isn't a bank, you know, this is like some sort of like weird financial firm that like you know, it's not like we actually even hold customer deposits. People pay us, people give us their capital and it's all sort of like in one pool and we're supposed to manage that risk. All of that is just mind blowing to me. That's not the way an exchange works. Like if you, if you look at the, the operations of Kraken or Coinbase, these are like legitimate banks. Like they have customer Mm -hmm. deposits, they have liabilities, they have assets, they have reserves. Um, so yeah, it's a total shit show. Hey, something else I would be curious to pick your brain on is if you know if you've heard much about like the GBTC Genesis digital currency group uh, debacle. Have you heard anything? I know they mentioned it a little bit last night, where he's like he was on the board of Genesis or something like that, but I, I don't know too much about it. But if you want to fill me in, I'm happy to. Yeah. So add some commentary. Um. Uh, this is the other thing this is the other big potential domino to drop in the cryptocurrency industry right now is Barry, Barry Silbert so um, Arthur Hayes you know who Arthur Hayes is right yeah I do yeah he's come under a lot of fire recently right I love Arthur Hayes oh my gosh so he has this he's he's like um he sort of turned into a blogger, you know, in the past few years, because I think he's literally on house arrest, <laughs> but he's actually a great guy in my opinion. I mean, I don't know him personally, but I, I, I sense that he's actually, you know, he's like, he made some decisions when he was young that were, you know, questionable, but we all do that to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's been like, he's sort of turned into a blogger these past few years. And I read every single one of his pieces. They are so good. And, um, his most recent piece is about DCG and um, Genesis and, and Barry Silbert. And in the piece, he he starts out the piece by saying, I'm going to refer to Barry Silbert as Barry Shilbert. <laughs> so the whole piece, he calls him Barry Shilbert or Mr. Oh Shilbert. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is so good. This is so good. Okay. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, so are you talking about are you talking about the trust Bitcoin trust? So that's a part of it, right? I don't know. I don't know all the details here. Okay, but I think at the root level, you have DCG Digital Currency Group, which which is some sort of like investment firm or like financial firm, um, and they own a lot of cryptocurrency companies. They've been big in the venture capital uh, space, actually. 
and um you know two of the companies that they own are the grayscale bitcoin trust and they also own the um genesis and genesis is a lending platform i think they also have an ownership stake in gemini it's interesting mm-hmm. nobody ever talks about gemini it's an it's a major exchange but nobody yeah. talks about it um so i want to talk a little bit about gbtc okay okay so i in my opinion i think that gbtc is at the root of all of the shit show that the cryptocurrency space <laughs> has experienced over the past two years now this is a this is a narr- like a thesis i'm developing in my head so it's very incomplete but um so let me first explain what gbtc is GBTC is a trust and the way it works is users can deposit their Bitcoin and then they receive equity, the resulting equity on the, on, on the underlying Bitcoin. Um, and then I also think that you can even just, they can issue new shares and buy Bitcoin on your behalf. So you can give them dollars and they can buy Bitcoin, put it in the trust, and then you have the equity. Publicly traded stock. Um, the, the, there is no redemption mechanism for the trust, right? So the Bitcoin goes in and they can never come back out. Like I'm, this is already like people, when you just explain that people are like, what is the point in that? Like, what's the productive value of the trust, right? So it's like an equity that is like a claim on the underlying Bitcoin, except you can never redeem the Bitcoin. So what's the productive value? Basically, it's a financial it's financial engineering, right? So Barry Schilbert wanted to give Wall Street exposure to to these cryptocurrencies. There's also an Ethereum uh, trust, Grayscale Ethereum trust, um, and there's actually like a Zcash one too, I think, or there's multiple. So he wanted to give Wall Street exposure to these assets. And that was the only way that he could get approval from the regulators is to build his trust. He's always had the, the he's always had the the intention of turning the trust into an ETF, right? And an ETF, the Bitcoin is redeemable. So the, the ETF is like a like a paper Bitcoin, right? Whereas the the GBTC equity is not really paper. Bitcoin because it's not redeemable. It's just sort of like a claim over the trusts itself, right? Which happens to mm-hmm. own Bitcoin. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm already like pissed off that we're like financial engineering this nonsense that has no productive value whatsoever, right? I mean, what's the productive value of this thing? It's not adding value to the world whatsoever. Where I think they went wrong was... They had a, a policy, which was a six-month lockup period. So if you deposited Bitcoin, you would be issued shares, but you but you couldn't um, liquidate those shares for six months, or they weren't fully vested for six months, right? So you had a six-month period where you had equity in the in in the trust, but you didn't you weren't able to you know sell that equity. That policy created a premium in the grayscale bitcoin trust because um there was a there's a massive institutional demand for bitcoin much more demand for for bitcoin than was in the grayscale bitcoin trust and so the equity traded at a premium right so mm-hmm. the the markets the financial markets were okay with paying a premium because that was the only way that they could get exposure to bitcoin and there was more money on that side of the equation than there was bitcoin right so there was a premium and that premium created an, ar- an arbitrage opportunity and this is what three arrows capital did this is what um blockfi did i guarantee you a lot of people did this a lot of people did this they would you know, deposit the Bitcoin into the trust and then they would expect to sell the equity at a premium in six months to, to the actual Bitcoin price. <clears throat> so, so there's sort of like this six-month policy that incentivizes front-running, right? You got to get in now 
but because you're gonna have to wait six months in order to in order to capture that premium. And front running <laughs> is an incentive for Ponzi's. Okay, that's how Ponzi's work. There's a there's a duration element to Ponzi's. You know, you have to get in now. The people who get in early in the Ponzi's don't actually get wrecked because they can sell before the Ponzi blows up. Mm -hmm. um, so you have this this Ponzi dynamic. Um, to to further make this worse, <laughs> uh, these hedge funds couldn't sell their GBTC equity for six months, but they could post it as collateral and then get a loan, which is effectively selling it, right? I mean, you're effectively getting, it's a liquid, it's a liquid transaction. So you're getting the, the dollars. And so everybody, all of these hedge funds, three rows capital, and like, I'm sure a lot of other people were essentially leveraged to the tits <laughs> through this grayscale trade. And um, starting around the first Bitcoin crash, I think in May of 21, the, the, that equity started to trade at a discount. So again, think of like Wall Street. Wall Street demand for Bitcoin is now smaller than the actual Bitcoin in the trust. And so um, you can't redeem the, the Bitcoin. And so it's going to trade at a, at a discount. So, you know, Bitcoin arbitrary numbers was a 50,000, but the actual equity value of that Bitcoin was like 40,000, right? Because mm -hmm. there just wasn't enough demand for the equity for the stock because Wall Street didn't want Bitcoin anymore. So now you have a scenario where GBTC is like a, a more volatile play on Bitcoin. And, and it's also being used as collateral. And if you use a volatile asset as collateral, you're going to get margin called. Like the market will find a way to margin call you. So, okay. So that's those are all like the, the mechanical matters of GBTC. And I think that basically the crypto did, crypto did, blow up to what like what we're experiencing now started in may 21 it just took like 18 months to play out right mm. and um yeah so because there's been a play like that's been out there for i guess about a year where essentially buy up some of the um gbtc and then assume that Gary Gensler is going to approve it as an ETF and then all the Bitcoin in the trust gets marked to market and you have this nice arbitrage where essentially you 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 get claims uh on Bitcoin for quite a discount. I think quite it, a discount exactly. It's currently like it's been twenty five to thirty percent. Is it more now? Dude, it's like almost fifty percent now. Yeah. yeah. So it's a big problem. It is a big problem. And I'll tell you why. Because there, in order for that discount to, to go back to NAV, um, you have to have one of a few things happen. You have to have what you have or what you just said, which is that um, the SEC has to approve the conversion into an ETF. But if they... If they do that, then see that's it's not like magically fifty percent of the value just shows up, right? That value has to come from somewhere else, and like where it will come from is by sell pressure on the Bitcoin price. So like, it's not like you can just you know I know there's this narrative of like well we just need Gensler to approve the ETF, <laughs> you know. I know we live in a fiat world with elastic supply money, but like the money has to come from somewhere. Okay. And ask yourself, where is it going to come from? So it's not like the conversion to an ETF suddenly solves all, all the problems, right? What I'm my point here is that that discount is a massive problem. And I'm just trying to articulate why the mm. other way, the other way that that discount could be solved is for some reason you have a new giant institutional wave of demand for Bitcoin again. And so they want Bitcoin exposure. And and you again you you want that dynamic where there is more um 
more demand in Wall Street for Bitcoin than there is supply of Bitcoin in the trust. <clears throat> Here's the problem with that one. Michael Saylor, <laughs> Michael Saylor will not like he has a he has a system that prevents that from happening. MicroStrategy is effectively the Bitcoin ETF. That's effectively what MicroStrategy is. And so it's much more efficient. There is no nav, there is no discount or premium problem. And so if the market suddenly is like, if the financial markets are like, we want a massive exposure to Bitcoin, why would they buy GBTC that has all these problems with the discount to nav and has all these lending issues with DCG? It's a shit show when they could just hit up Michael Saylor and be like, hey, can you just, we'll give you a billion dollars. Can you go buy Bitcoin? on the market and then we'll, we'll buy micro strategy stock. Right. It's yeah. a more efficient market mechanism. So, you know, Michael Saylor, uh, it, it's so funny. I, I don't know if this is intentional or like if there's like sort of like people playing 40 chess here, or if it's just the way the market works, but micro Mike, Michael Saylor has single-handedly kneecapped a lot of the crypto industry. I mean, kneecapped them in so many ways in like that you know that's like the operational way obviously he also has this like public campaign where he's like shitting on them calling them securities and all this stuff and and then he's like this there's like an energy play with him he's like big on the miners so <clears throat> i don't know man crazy world gbtc is a big problem and okay so essentially you don't see any way out so the the you other way see like it's so all the, bad. The other way out would be um, they could dissolve the trust, but there's no reason for them to do that because they get a 2% management fee, which is enormous. Nobody in financial markets demands that level of fee for this particular type of product. And here's the kicker. The fee is not on the equity value. It's on the underlying Bitcoin value. So they, so right now it's two, you know, 2% fee, but in real terms, you're going to be paying like three or 4%, which is mm -hmm. enormous. And so it's a total cash cow for DCG, the parent company. They're making like several hundred millions of dollars a year on just fees. And it's like, they're not, you know, like what's their, what's their OPEX to do that? Sure. They got to pay some expensive lawyers who are like making crazy money and living in Manhattan or whatever, but like, they're not like, they don't have a, a company of thousands of employees and have a bunch of OPEX costs. Right. So they're just, right. print, they're just printing money. Um, so they're, they don't have an incentive to, to dissolve the trust. Another potential option is someone could come in and buy the trust and effectively take it private or like, you know, like a big bank could come in and be like, we're going to buy up all of the trust. We're going to take it private. We're going to dissolve it or do whatever we want to do. Um, sort of like the the Elon Twitter play, right? Um, that might be the most likely outcome, actually. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, maybe, uh, maybe Jack does it. <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> what yeah. is, what would be the price? Because well, for something like that, would you just pay the nav or would you have to pay some kind of multiple do you think you wouldn't pay nav because the market's not paying now so why would you but you would probably have to pay more than whatever the current <clears throat> the current discount is i'll tell you who's really eyeballing it <laughs> probably is michael sailor <laughs> okay because that guy is a stone cold killer i mean people shit on michael sailor but my god i think he's actually very brilliant <laughs> well yeah wait who shits on michael saylor there's a lot of people in like the fintech or the fintwit space like traditional finance people who um who think he's like a clown or whatever he's definitely playing a dangerous game and i think that he could get margin called he could actually he's definitely playing a dangerous game but so far he's winning the game yeah interesting so I want to well, say let's... I want to tell you one more thing too, which is that um, just to bring us back to D DCG. So DCG is the parent company, Barry Silber's parent company over, um, you know, uh, GBTC, and then um, but they also own Genesis, who's a lender. And I told you if you if you rewind 
I remember people were using those GBTC shares as collateral for loans. Turns out Genesis was like the one, like the largest lender <laughs> executing on that trade. So you have this huge balance sheet problem in the DCG world um, where they're just like, they just have like multiple, multiple billions of dollars on their, in a hole, in, the, in a hole in their balance sheet. And like, and that, that just further, further exacerbates the, like, um, the ugliness of buying the GPTC stock. Like why would anybody in their right minds in the financial markets buy this GBTC equity when they know all of the, the counterparty risk associated with the, with the overall parent organization. Um, and again, mm. like, you can just go to Michael Saylor and be like, Hey, just buy it on my behalf and I'll buy your stock. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not as simple. It sounds like there's a lot more going on than what originally people in the Bitcoin space were talking about where they were like, you can essentially get Bitcoin for cheap. Mm-hmm. It's not that simple. Through this trade. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause again, there's like, it's hard to, I don't know how to articulate this, but like when people talk about the, the ETF arbitrage, they, they sort of discount where is that? Like money has to flow in for that nab to collapse. I know people will try to front run it. So they'll be like, Oh, there's going to turn into an ETF. And so I'm going to buy it now. And then that, and you know, that will sort of collapse the nav, but they have like, they're the single largest holder of Bitcoin. I don't know how much, I think they have like 600,000 Bitcoins. I mean, that is a tremendous amount of money that has to flow in to, to, to collapse that, that nav. By the way, if I'm really getting tinfoil here, tinfoil here, <clears throat> I suspect that some of those Bitcoins were like not clean Bitcoins. Like they were like deposited, you know, how do you ever prove that? Or like, is there ever, is that ever going to come to light? I don't know. I'm just saying like, if you, if you rewind the clock two or three years, Bitcoin market cap was still small. Most of the holders of Bitcoin were like not, you know, clean institutions, public institutions with like a proven track record of, you know, acquiring the coins cleanly. Surely there's a large amount of those that were deposited in ways which are questionable, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, overall, not good, not good. What What is the likelihood in your head that we see something similar to the FTX Alameda piece where, you know, in this GB, where there's all these like intertwinings potentially where there's 600,000 Bitcoin that are locked up, quote unquote. But is there a way to actually check that? Is there a wallet that everyone can go in and check? Okay, this wallet still has 600,000, similar to how we can do that with Satoshi's wallet, right? Yeah, no, they they don't publish they don't publish their like proof of reserves or anything. So this uh, might be a similar story of a centralized entity. We know a that large bag potentially we know, claiming to. Yeah, we know that um, Coinbase is their custodian, but we don't know. They haven't proved their reserves, which is pretty trivial to do. Um, I don't know. I mean, what's the likelihood they don't have the coins? Probably pretty low. Again. I wouldn't be surprised if there was like technical problems somewhere along the way and they accidentally lit some on fire. That's a problem with Bitcoin. It's like if you have one character in your like long string of characters, which is wrong, it goes into the void. It gets it, it gets lit on fire. It's no no not recoverable. Um, so there could be something like that going on. I mean, I don't think that they're running like a Ponzi scheme or anything. Very, mm -hmm. very, very unlikely. Um, and I don't think that there's going to be a scenario where it's like, like a nuclear event where they blow up and cause a bunch of chaos, but they're going to have to DCGs reign over the crypto industry, which lasts maybe five or six years, in my opinion is over. It is no more. And so yeah. now, now there's a power vacuum and we'll see, we'll see what happens. Okay. I actually yeah, wonder too. Sorry, one more thing. I actually wonder how much of this did Gary Gensler know? See, if I was Gary Gensler and I wanted to crash the crypto markets, 
the one thing that I wouldn't do is approve a Bitcoin ETF because it would expose all of this chaos. It would, because, you know, like everything was interconnected. I'm telling you, the GBTC trade was at the root of it all and it incentivized Ponzi dynamics. It was, it was the problem child. So I wonder if Gensler knew, you know, I don't know. Did Sailor know? Hmm. Did people know? I don't know. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's funny that all the things that Bitcoin was created to fix, somehow individuals are finding a way to create the same old problems on top of this new asset, you know, by centralizing things, by not making it transparent, um, and essentially just playing, sounds like, to your point with GBTC, playing with leverage that is backed by illiquid, potentially either illiquid um, tokens for a time or in SBF's case, illiquid tokens, as long as he can keep the Ponzi running with FTT. It's just, the mo that's the most frustrating part for me is that Bitcoin, Bitcoin will be lumped in as always with all of this, but it was systems that were built on top of the asset um, that mirror our current system that is the reason for turmoil. So the other thing I was going to bring up is, man, if this was a Bitcoin only exchange, like it, it, take the Sam Bankman Freed and, and say maybe it was Corey uh, from Swan. I think the media reaction, if if I had to play the game, of what would the media reaction if this was a Bitcoin-only company that was uh, essentially messing with customer funds? Can you can you give me a prediction, Kendall? What the media reaction would be if this was a Bitcoin-only firm? Dude, I love this this framing. I mean, my gosh, this is amazing. You, this is like hitting the nail on the head. I totally agree. Look. Um, the a foundational reason for governments to exist is to orchestrate the money supply. And so, um, you know, in a way, I don't mean to shit on Bitcoiners, but like if they think that they can overthrow governments, like good luck. Like this is like the number one reasons why governments exist. <laughs> so, uh, so it's no surprise that, um, SBF, who is effectively running a fiat Ponzi organization. I mean, literally, his game was like, as long as I can get the full faith and credit of the United States government, who cares if there's a $10 billion hole? And he was right. Mm -hmm. That is how it works. That is how it works. Uh, so I totally agree. The media is like, well, I don't know. It's okay, you know. But if it was Bitcoin, yeah, they would, oh, they would be, I mean, it would be like, libertarians are you know trying to cause anarchy and they're gonna burn the world down and uh, yeah. yeah not good that's the most frustrating part is they essentially get to play both sides of their of this game they they get to blame bitcoin for something bitcoin did not do and they get to essentially say see you know you the common citizen you need us now more than ever because otherwise you're going to you know, you're going to lose all your money. So, yeah. Well, um, but I think that, I think that the, they're, the truth is winning out, dude. I really do. I really think that the narrative, I think that the public sees what the Bitcoiners are saying now. And I mm -hmm. think that that's what I'm trying. That's why I started this conversation with. Yeah. I, I've, I don't know for sure. It's hard to like place that bet, but I really think this is like a seminal moment in the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. I hope, I hope you're right. I just, the hardest part is to try to gauge how plugged in people are. And if I had to just go off of, you know, prior, you know, data, people were just never plugged in as much as you would hope they would be. And I'm talking about people on mass and, they only read headlines and that's the game that in that scenario, all these, you know, big tech, big government, big media, they win in that game. What it takes is people really turning their brains on, on mass 
digging in and thinking critically about things. And I think that's what it comes down to it. I just don't think there's enough people yet critically thinking about things, but hopefully I think people will start to critically think once they, once maybe a year or two of this cycle of inflation starts taking hold where they, their savings are dwindling. They can't afford things. They they've gone to their job and they're asking for a raise. The job's not giving them the raise they want. And that cycle perpetuates even just for a little bit. And they're like, okay, this can't work. What's going on. I've got to dig in. Um, so, so we'll see. I mean, I, I would hope that you're correct. I would hope that the tide is turning, but I don't know. I think it's in some ways, it's just a matter of time. Like people don't have enough time um, in their lives to actually dig in, in ways like we do. Um, and then even sometimes when they do have time, they're caught up in so much of this noise. That's the hardest part, right? Is that even if somebody's doing a lot of research and this happens to us, like this isn't, you know, this happens to the best of a person really trying to dig in. You just run into a lot of noise and mm. you have like the biggest skill is being able to sift through mm. so much dirt and find just the few nuggets of gold. Right. Mm. Mm. And so, yeah, we'll see. We'll just see. Um, I mean, the China thing, we can kind of talk about that. I think oh, yeah, that's a good yeah. example of, of uh, to your point, people finally starting to, you know, stir things up and say, what what is going on here? We're done with this kind of thing. And obviously, that's more so in China. It's with the COVID protocols. And um, what sparked that, I think, is there was a building that caught fire that 10 people died in because they weren't able to get out because they had been like sealed shut inside the building because of COVID protocols um, there with the zero COVID policy. So, um, but I think that's, and that's another huge from a global economic standpoint, the whole China reopening obviously is going to play a, a huge role, but right now at this moment, it's still not open it's more so, so people are just kind of like throwing a fit right now yeah so i have a new thesis on this that i want to sh i want to throw your way okay it's, um because <clears throat> there's just been there's been this thesis about the reopening i know there was a good episode on macro voices where they talked about the reopening and in g's pivot and it being inflationary i think actually my opinion on actually what's going on is that the chinese economy is is in total shambles I think the financial system is like totally collapsed and um and it's not like they can recover. So so the the parallel that I've heard is in the 80s Japan had a had a massive boom. I mean a massive boom. The biggest bubble maybe ever was in Japan in the 80s. And it was because I had the tech boom and everybody thought that the, the Japan was going to take over the world. We've talked about this before. And then at the end of the 80s, that bubble popped. And look at the J Japanese monetary system for the last three decades. They've effectively had to monetize the debt. The central bank basically owns the entire economy. Um, I think that that is basically what happened to China in the last three to four years, let's call it. And so China's economy is dead in the water. And so, and I don't, and I think that the, the lockdowns, are actually Xi trying to cover that up. I don't think he wants the world to know how weak China actually is. And so he's like, well, we're just going to lock down. So it's not, I don't think it's something that he can just be like, we're going to lift the lockdowns and now China's going to open back up and, and be booming. I think that the lockdowns are irrelevant to the actual economic impact of China currently. Um, now the people are getting fed up and I totally understand that. I think that there's so much human rights issues that goes on in China. I mean, there are so many violations that I don't think the average American is even acutely, like even reasonably aware of the, the degree of human rights violations that go on in China. I mean, I think that this place, you you wouldn't want to go there. I would not recommend any American go there in today's world. I mean, you've seen the videos of like the giant facilities they're building to house COVID. I mean, it looks like a straight up 
I mean, it looks like Auschwitz. I'm going to say it like it just looks mm-hmm. like a concentration camp and it is it's not good, dude. It is not good at all. Yeah. Well, I think the other piece I was listening to odd lots this morning. Actually, the first time I've ever listened to an odd lots episode was this morning. Oh, I love that. They had um, an episode on China. I haven't listened to it. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. And so. The. Sorry, I had a phone call come through. You can, you can still hear me, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, this, one of the points that the guests made that they brought on um, was essentially that they, in major cities, they have nowhere near the resources from a medical standpoint, like with hospitals and beds and all that kind of stuff, to actually um, service a COVID spike. And so that that was the other piece is like they open up Omicron and it's are they on the same? This is going to sound dumb, but is it like cold there right now? Yes. Okay. so, you know, I've got the flu right now. COVID's still going around Omicron like and this this one is like, you know, it's it goes through the whole society, right? It doesn't matter whatever you think about vaccinations, like people still get COVID, right? Even if you got the vaccine. And so essentially what this guy was saying was there's just not enough um, medical resources available in the country for them to be able to handle a COVID spike. Um, So that was the other piece, but I do. So it's, I think it's, it's a bunch of different reasons. Um, But I mean, I, I think I'm still with, um, the folks who say once the reopen happens, I think we're going to see a lot more inflation because they're, yeah, I think that's got to right. think, I think that's, right. I mean, I got to think there's so many people, even normal, <clears throat> well, maybe not normal laborers, but like there's definitely a large portion of the population that used to frequently travel to the United States and Europe that would spend, you know, whatever amount per night in a hotel spend at restaurants all that kind of stuff where those people are they're not they're not able to do that right now so i think that simply that and then and then the the whole resource thing but it's it's an authoritarian government i mean they can essentially do whatever they want um the one surprising thing that they did say on that podcast the guy was like very surprised at the videos that we've been able to see on twitter Mm -hmm. um you know normally that kind of stuff is not released and highly censored dude i heard that's interesting too i i I saw something that was so their their tech giant is uh huawei i don't know if you know this huawei is is like they're sort of like google slash apple type of thing um like huawei has devices as well as so hardware and software and apparent i mean this is one tweet i saw you know it's all it's all maybe it's bullshit i don't know but huawei was actually monitoring individual phones videos and they were deleting they were deleting protest videos from the from the people's devices yeah i mean my god here's the thing with that i don't know if you've read the sovereign individual the thing is that just doesn't work it's not an effective strategy. Even if you want to sort of control your your public, that's not the way you do it. <laughs> like, it's just dumb, okay? But yeah. anyway. Well, especially when you only... Well, there's that way that they're doing it, but they're, the other way that they're doing it is literally police are just taking people's phone, manually going into their photo and video app and deleting videos out of their phone. Mm. Um talk about inefficiency i mean that yeah you, well you can't, yeah so like you can't do that for very long you can so i'm not downplaying the, the power of technology because they probably have ai that's trained see you can build you can build an ai agent and then just be like okay we're going to monitor every single video and photo on everybody's phone especially at least like in this one area where we know there's a mm-hmm. protest and just pass it through the ai is it part is it like should it be censored? Yes or no? And you can do that like in the snap of a finger, right? And it's like cost very little. So mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's extremely scary. But my, my my point about the sovereign individual is that, you know, you can do that 
a lot, but people you can you can't plug every hole and people videos are going to slip through. And if you get somebody, especially if you get one of these hardcore Bitcoiners or the mountain men, you know, like guys like me who know, I know how the technology works. You can put me in China and I'll find a way around their censorship. Okay. I can guarantee it. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it just like my, my, yeah, the point with a sovereign individual is just like, you're exacerbating the problem because you're, you're violating human rights, which are going to be reported on, even if you try your absolute hardest to, to suppress it. Yeah. This is actually a good segue to the second podcast I was getting into. So I've been behind on podcasts this week because of my sickness. I've been sleeping a little bit more. Mm, that's um, good. But yeah, but this morning um, I was catching up on the What Bitcoin Did podcast and there was an episode with Alex Gladstein that um, that I started. I was, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the way through or something. He's been doing a deep dive into the IMF and the World Bank. Um, talk about talk about some human rights stuff. Very interesting. I, we can leave it out there as kind of a cliffhanger, mm. maybe to talk about for next week. Yeah. But um, let's just say, you know, we were brought. I, I don't know about you, but I remember learning about the the World Bank when I and the IMF when I was like in high school, and how essentially they like rescue poor countries from terrible situations um alex kind of turns that on his head and <laughs> paints them more as loan sharks right than than like you know the salvation army or something so love that guy alex Gladstein. dude dude he's doing he needs to he needs to watch out i feel like he's probably got a target on his head you know oh, what i'm saying man. probably that's that's unfortunate that's an unfortunate reality but it's probably true I mean, he's just uncovering a lot of things and calling out a lot of just huge organizations. Even the fact when he was he was explaining at the very beginning of the pod, he was like, there's just not a lot of research that has been done in the last 20 years about either of these organizations, um, which he didn't comment on why that was. But hmm. you almost you almost like have to think, why is no one looking into these organizations you know yeah, yeah so okay um i'm trying to think so we covered sbf we covered some of the china stuff trust is dwindling bitcoin though bitcoin pumped a little bit yesterday with the markets the markets overall pumped a little bit yesterday um i assume though that's still to me that still seems a lot like noise mm -hmm. so I mean, probably my market prediction will be like up for the next week or two, maybe three, and then back down. I think that before the year end, the, the traders are going to get their faces ripped off. And then I think we're basically flat to down. The recession will kick in next year. And then like we're kind of we're kind of just mostly flat for the next year or two. Yeah. I know I know Bitcoiners want the Fed to pivot. Here's the problem. The Fed may pivot and that may not be good for risk assets. See, that is that's the problem, right? That's when you get into the world world of stagflation, because it no longer their tools basically no longer work. And at that point, you may have much higher oil prices. I think within the next three years, we will see a two hundred dollar oil price. Two hundred dollars, um, but it's all it's all volatile. You know, it's all over the place. Yeah. Well, I am. We're you know, with twenty twenty three, we're going to be coming into um, the year before the next having. Which I know there's a lot of speculation nowadays of like the havings don't mean anything to the price. So that'll be another interesting kind of narrative that we can watch mm. develop. You know, to see. Where do people yeah. think the having is going to put the price? The having. My guess is the havings don't mean anything anymore. Yeah. Not to be cynical <laughs> or pessimistic. Actually, it's more pessimistic. I mean, but it wipes out it. It wipes out a lot of daily new Bitcoin supply. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I just think right now we're still we are still in this like room full of mirrors. 
in the Bitcoin space. Um, like when you just try to go out and, and, uh, operate as a Bitcoiner out in this world today, you're in this like room of mirrors because there's so many, like there's so many lies and fiat type of, um, mechanisms that are built on top of, um, Bitcoin. And so it's so hard to know what is true mm. right now, mm. even with the price. I think that, well, that's why, point, that's why we're here, Jordan. That's really, <laughs> that's right up our alley. We know. Yeah, we know. We know. <laughs> We're out here searching through the mirrors. So cool. All righty. Well, do we leave it there? That's it. Cool. All righty. Thank you all for listening. We will talk to you next week. Happy December. Go USA.